0: Today's central text is found in Philippians 3, verses 17 through 21. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross in Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Derek. Good morning. My name's Chaz. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Since we have all the children here, let's do what is most appropriate. Let's have a little story time. How's that sound? Let's all nestle up. If you're at all familiar, uh, Chronicles of Narnia right at the end, the last battle, right at the end, after all these adventures through Narnia and all the other different lands, the kings and queens of Narnia, the children of the wardrobe, they have to say goodbye to Narnia, and it's a tearful moment. You know, how do you say goodbye to this world that you stumbled upon through the spetoom, um, right? And this—all these things that have meant so much to you—it's a somber moment, but there's there's solace because what Aslan's going to do is he's going to take them to a better world. But still, in their minds, it's it's not, but it's not our Narnia. An interesting thing happens as they as the kings and queens walk through the new world that Aslan had made for them it's filled with just this intense beauty. As they walk by waterfalls, they're just bigger. They seem to mean more. The, wa- the hills are wilder. The, uh, every flower in their minds, seems like it meant more, and there's just this sense in which they look around this world, and they say, wow, it reminds me of somewhere. I, I can't put my finger on it, but in a sense, maybe this is the world Narnia was always meant to be like. And finally, Farsight the Eagle Okay. He takes off and he soars in the sky, and he spreads his wings and he starts flying around. It's thirty-four feet in the air. Circled around, then alight on the ground, and he says, "Kings and queens, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I have seen it all: Etten'smoor, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Care Paravel, still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead." this is Narnia. And Lord Diggory interjects and he says, listen Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that wasn't the real Narnia. That hadn't ended in the beginning. It was only a shadow or copy of the real Narnia which has always been here and always will be. And finally, the unicorn stamped his foot, neighed and he said, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have only been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up, come further in. That's how unicorns talk, if you didn't know that. Just, just giving a lot of Fesbian stuff going on here this morning. C.S. Lewis, you know what he did there? He brilliantly illustrated the hope that is littered on every page of the New Testament. Scholar N.T. Wright put it like this. What what God did for the early church, he said the early Christians responsible for writing the New Testament believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what he had done for Jesus at Easter. When Jesus resurrected from the grave, he didn't just open a door to heaven. Do you know what happened? Heaven opened up a door to our world. The promise is that Jesus Christ, it's not that we float away one day by and by to some wispy world. The promise is that heaven is coming down here. When Jesus began his ministry, he began with words like this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And right here in our passage, we see this thing show up again that we need to really pay attention to. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, and that is not just a future thing he's writing. He's writing in the present tense. What in the world does this mean? How is this practical? I think it's intensely practical, and so it's here in front of us, and we're going to look at it. But first, the problem of the earthly mind, and when we say earthly mind, and you're going to be a little bit surprised what Paul means by that. Two, the power of the heavenly mind, and lastly, the heavenly man. And there might be the power of air conditioning, because I see some of you losing your minds going like this right now. So if we'll, somebody could kick that on, that'd be helpful. All right, so let's take a look at the first point, and here's where you are. If you've been an out... The church is centered here in Philippi. And if you, we've kind of said about Philippi, here it is, here's Rome. It's an outpost, a very important city in the Roman Empire. And what happened is that a lot of the Roman soldiers became the attractional place for retired Roman soldiers to come and live there. Now, Paul, as we've said, we don't know exactly where he is, what city, but Paul, one of the hallmarks of the book of Philippians is where's Paul when he's writing? Not city, but where, what conditions are he, is he in? He's in prison. And seemingly, he seems to not be very concerned about his prison conditions. What he's concerned about is this church because he's absent. Uh, much in the same way that we as parents, we, we get concerned about kind of the cultural influences and the friends that our, parent, our kids have and what that's going to do. Paul's very concerned about the cultural influences of Philippi on this church. And you'll you kind of notice one of the things that's true about the Roman Empire and the culture is the average Roman citizen was very sensual, very self-indulgent culture, very self-focused, pleasure-seeking. In fact, uh, a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to go to another Roman uh, outpost uh, in North Africa. That's the Mediterranean Sea. Do you know what this is? <laughs> I mean, this covered like a vast landscape. This is a Roman bathhouse. <laughs> and you find these all over the Roman former Roman Empire. Why? Because... One, I can't tell you what happened in front of the inside of those things because there's kids in here. This is a culture committed to sensuality, my own pleasures, all these different things. And Paul's warning this audience about that. He's concerned, not simply because he's worried that the church, th- that the people in the city have the morals of alicats, but there's something that actually led the Roman Empire and many of them live in the living there to be like that. And the reason is this. You might be surprised to learn that the average Roman really believed themselves to be a very spiritual person. And what they believed in, and this is kind of left over from the Greeks, is they believed what mattered most in life was the soul, the spiritual world. What doesn't matter is the body, the material world. And so it led to this massive, like, dichotomy. And what they actually believed is, is there's a way in this life through my spiritual beliefs is that my, I can achieve spiritual perfection, <laughs> But that spiritual perfection will have no impact whatsoever on how I live my life physically embodied. For example, if you were here during the Corinthians uh, series, this showed up. What happened is, as many believe that the gospel meant that, you know, I became a Christian. And Jesus is coming to my life. And now my soul's reached perfection. But it doesn't really impact the way I live my life. And so Paul says such a person is earthly-minded. And when we think of earthly-minded, what we really tend to think what that means is a person who's very practical. (laughs) We think an earthly-minded person, what Paul means here is the person who's got their feet on the ground as opposed to some heavenly-minded person who's got their heads in the clouds. When Paul says a person is earthly-minded, he's talking about a person who doesn't want too much of the earth, He's talking about a person who's got too little view of the world. See, when I just read that earlier, we could probably say about the children of Narnia, what was their problem? They were too Narnia-minded. They had too little view of what, could, what Aslan could do for not just Narnia, but if you read it further and further, they have these new bodies. They can run without ever getting tired. Paul's saying... That, if you just have a view of just your soul is what's best and how we live in body and physical, Paul's saying you're earthly minded because you have too low a view of the earth. You're not seeing the big picture. It's why C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in, aim at earth and you'll get neither. See, Paul was writing to people and he's warning them soberly, saying, don't you understand the gospel? Watch out for this. Because what what at the end of the day is the gospel? Jesus Christ lived in heaven. (laughs) Jesus Christ was heavenly minded. But because Jesus Christ is heavenly minded, what happened? He got earth thrown in. What, What is the gospel? We don't have a gospel unless Jesus Christ leaves heaven and flings the door wide open to this earth. And Jesus Christ came to this earth, He came bodily. He lived bodily. Jesus Christ died bodily. Jesus rose bodily. He wasn't a ghost. We're told he even ascended into heaven in a body. And I don't know how this works, but when you and I pray, Jesus, you're not praying to just the spirit. Jesus, I, he's got eardrums. He probably hears your prayers. I don't know. I can't verify this through his eardrums. Why does this matter so much? Okay. I'll tell you why it matters. Paul is pointing to the inevitable problem of if we don't understand that and we're not taking that literally, he's pointing to their God is their belly. He's talking about the people who just believe all that matters is just the spiritual world. And he says their God is their belly. And he's not just saying, again, watch out for these Loose moral people, watch out for the people, they're just a bunch of cluttons, they're just a bunch of drunkards, they're a bunch of sinners. He's talking about, he's using the stomach as a metaphor that the inevitable pattern of life is if you don't see this. If we don't see what God is going to do to our bodies and what he's going to do to this world, invariably one of the patterns that emerges in our life is all of a sudden we go out into the world and we just grab every bit of it. We go out on the world and we look at our lives and we just want to grab every bit of it and never let go, like the children didn't want to let go of Narnia. Because we we fundamentally, we're holding on to this world because we believe it's now or never. And I've got to suck everything out of this life. Jesus taught all these parables and it shows this attitude that sort of shows up. We have a very narrow view of this world it's the parables of the bridegroom and the tenants. And when those who don't see this, the, the number one thing that shows up in this impatience and this doubt and not thinking about these things, all of a sudden they do anything to give themselves to the indulgence of life, as all of us do. See, what happens is when we fail to really understand this, the embodiment, the physicality of the gospel, we fail to do that. We're grabbing onto life, and also of a we go out in the world, and we, we, we find ourselves with very needy people in life, and we've got this one little life that we're holding onto, and yeah, we might give a little bit of time to them. We might open our doors every now and then, but all of a sudden, when we're just holding on only to what we have here, we're counting the cost, aren't we? Every time we encounter somebody who's very needy, all of a sudden, we're counting the cost Like, what am I going to get out of this? There's a limit to what I can do here. If all of a sudden we're holding on only to this world, we have these relational problems that show up in life and we're, 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 we're faced with the, this thing, we have to forgive somebody and lose face. We have to lose face in relationships and ask for forgiveness and we, we don't want to do that. Why? Because all of a sudden we're just believing that this is all I've got. I've got, I can't lose, I can't admit when I'm wrong. This is my life here on the line. This is everything. So what happens is if all we see is this narrow view of what's going on in this world, all of a sudden we look at real acts of justice and mercy. We're saying, what's the point? That will cost me something. Paul is being incredibly sober here. He's saying, he's crying about it. He's saying, a failure to really understand this, and all of a sudden you're grabbing onto everything in this world. You're living as an enemy of the cross. You're just, their end is destruction. He's saying soberly, you're lost. How are we going to process that? Let me... Let's talk here, let's get out of the clouds here, the second point, and let's talk about something very worldly, I guess, the golden bachelor, okay? Uh, <laughs> I read a brilliant critique this week of the golden bachelor just this past week in the New York Times. For those of you who aren't as worldly as I am and are watching this, um, I have given up watching the bachelor, but i have kind of watching this, I'm not going to lie, it's a guilty pleasure. This, somebody wrote an article titled, Why the Golden Bachelor Terrifies Me. And if you don't know anything about it, there's 12, you know, maybe two dozen women all vying for lasting happiness with 72-year-old Gary Turner, a widowed um, bachelor. And interesting enough, and you can kind of admit when you look at this picture, uh, these are a bunch of folks who are 60, 67 years old, but they don't remind me of Blanche, Rose, and Dorothy from the Golden Girls. No, they don't. They don't. They, <laughs> oops, something happened there. there. uh They don't, that doesn't look like them. They seem to have defied the aging process. And so she wrote this. She said, there's something here that sends a chill down my spine. The show has received glowing coverage from Predictable Corners, USA Today, and scored huge ratings for ABC. But is any of this actually good for older people or even for younger people? I mean, this is The Bachelor. (laughs) A mainstay of reality TV and a certain amount of desperation and superficiality is built into the DNA of the genre. But plunging older people into this context and then valorizing because perhaps from, perhaps with some nipping and tucking, they can just about fit. This feels more like a degeneration of aging. Some of these people have been on earth for 75 years. Here's an opportunity for them to demonstrate that life comfortably has many chapters and that there's always change. And this change is not not only natural, but good. But instead, we get a tight-toned show in which success involves being able to repeat chapter 3 for as long as possible. This version of freedom has nothing to do with wisdom or respite, with taking stock or giving back or the hard-worn uh, one virtues of age. It's about working extremely hard to remain the same as you were when you were younger, or maybe even fabulously youthy. Especially if that youthful you was wont to grind bare legged to don't stop believing in a tinsel handkerchief terrace. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, it's insightful. But here's something I think that the author of that article is missing. There's a reason why we don't want to let go. There's a reason why, beyond measures that we really need to do, we hold on to life, keep me alive, keep me alive, when we're well past that point. There's a reason why we're some of staving off wrinkles, hiding the gray, and wanting to remain youthful. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because we were meant to be like children forever. That's why. We were meant to be forever young in his kingdom. We were meant, literally, to leap greater bounds, to run without tiring, to fly and to eat and to laugh and to dance, to feast. It's an echo of the reality. The reason why you see this, it's an echo of the reality of the promises we've been looking at this morning. That Jesus, what Paul is saying about your body, do you know what kind of body you're going to get one day? It's going to be like Jesus' is risen and glorified, glorious, radiant body. We're going to fly. We're going to walk through walls, apparently, like Jesus did. But in order to get that, we've got, that's where the article's right, we've got to let go of something Those who have their mind set only for this world live only for this world. But Paul, is this is stunning stuff here. He is saying that when Jesus Christ came through to this world, something incredible and wondrous broke through on our planet. That Jesus walked around. The first words out of your mouth is, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Paul's speaking to people living on an outpost of the Roman Empire. And he's saying, But you, the Church of Jesus Christ, are an outpost of the kingdom of heaven that is both future and present now. I mean, and we talked earlier in the series, this is this a place full of Roman nationalism and, and pride. This, this was your identity. I'm Roman. And he's saying, That's not your moniker, that is not your identity. You are a citizen. If you're a Christian right now, you are united to Jesus Christ in the heavenlies. And you have a citizenship now. That is your true citizenship. And Paul is saying it, not just in the future, he's talking about now. Why? Because this is the same reason Jesus Christ, when his disciples said, please teach us how to pray. What did Jesus say? Pray like this. Your will be done on heaven as it is in heaven. Now, what did he say? Say it to me. Huh. On earth, your will be done in heaven as it is in on earth. Why does this matter? Because a lot of Christians hold on to the view of heaven and say, well, that's future, that's wispy. It's going to be great. I'm going to hang out with harps and angels and clouds and worship forever. That's going to be awesome. You're like, no, you're not excited about that. Of course not. This hope gave the early Christians for centuries the tenacity to stand up to death. And not just when they were dying, being ripped limb to limb by their captors. You know what they were doing? They were taking the ethics and values of their true citizenship, the laws and the values of their true citizenship, and applying them right there in Philippi on planet Earth. And when their captors were persecuting, and you know what they did? They prayed for them. They blessed and did not curse. In a city where everybody was living for themselves and what can I get from this woman? What can I take from this slave? Here were these Christians. And they weren't just saying future wispy reality way off in the distance. No, they were saying, let's break down racial and gender and social barriers today. Let's work against inequalities, inequities, injustices. Let's seek the kingdom of God to come Right now, in this very city, to hasten it. They were holding on to this, and they, you know what they were doing? They were giving their bodies to the flames and not to others sexually. The world had never seen any group of people on planet Earth ever live like that. And yet these are the people who split B.C. into A.D., and that is for a reason. Because they took, they took Paul literally. They took him literally here. That there is a point, there's a saint, there's an echo woven into all of us. You see it early in the Bible. We want this great world, this great city, tower of battle. But it's all to make a great name for ourselves. But there's a city we were made for in which the glory is not about us, it's about him. That we were made for. This is not impractical, and I'll tell you why. This is mightily practical. Let's, let's think through this. Consider for just a moment that if you really believe this, that you are a citizen today of this kingdom, how would that change your relationships? I'll just tell you how it changes mine. And I want you to do this with me. I want you to think about the most difficult person in your life. Stop thinking about me, okay? I really want you to think about that person who's very grating that you don't like. I think about this particular, there's a few in my life, and this person's a believer, but right now, when I am not believing this, do you know what I do when I see that person I only see today? All I see is their faults. I see the things that just disgust me. I see their insecurities. I see the way they hurt people, and I'm just like, "What? Is, go away but when I'm taking this literally and practically, do you know what begins to happen? I start believing this. And I start looking out into the future. And I start seeing that what Jesus Christ did for his body, he's going to do it for them. And that he who began a good work in them will see it to a completion. And I'm going to one day in the kingdom of God see this person shining as bright as the sun. And I will, never, I will not see this person tormented by whatever tormented them anymore. I will not see this person living out of their woundedness, their insecurities, their sin. And if I can see that person today breaking through now, do you know what that does? It floods my heart with compassion. And now I want to move towards that person. And now I want to view that person by that lens I want to move towards that relationship and forgive and ask for forgiveness and seek reconciliation. How many times of us, Robert Wright gets up here and he says, give to the church, right? And we all get stressed out. We get stressed out about money. Oh, somebody else has asked for something. And I get anxious and I get worried and my mind gets consumed and I can't sleep. And all of a sudden I'm reminded there's a kingdom coming. There's a kingdom coming, and worst-case scenario for me is I'll be running on streets of gold, not asphalt. The riches of the nations, as we just read, and the call to worship will be brought to us. And all of a sudden, I'm reminded, that's what I really, truly want to invest in. When I worry and I fret, I'm like, wow, why hasn't Catherine called in two hours? She's been on a car ride. Did they just die? And I go to all these scenarios where I'm imagining the worst-case scenario. I'm reminded that even the loss of the, the people we love the most, they will be brought back to us in the kingdom. Nothing's ever lost. When I'm cynical and I look at the world and I say, gosh, man, it's just getting worse and worse and worse, I'm reminded that this kingdom isn't just future. It's at hand now. And Jesus is on this throne of this kingdom today. When I feel like the work I'm doing is just all in vain, and the church has changed so much post-COVID. And what, what, what am I doing all this for? I'm reminded that after talking about all these things at the end of First Corinthians, Paul says, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When I get consumed with desires to see and experience everything the world has to offer, I'm reminded that the best is yet to come. Wait till I get to explore them in the kingdom. When I get discouraged thinking that acts of justice and mercy really don't do anything other than a drop of water in the ocean, I'm reminded that Jesus said that even a cup of water given his name moves the kingdom closer to its arrival. When I get fearful of my own death, I'm reminded that I can let go of this life because like the children of Narnia, I will step into a new world and leap and run and somersault my way in. Do you don't you ever let anyone convince you that there is such a thing as being too heavenly minded, that you are no earthly good. That is a load of rubbish. And if you're here two weeks ago, you might remember what that means. <laughs> because Jesus left heaven to come to this earth. And when he did, he split B.C. into A.D. Let's close this way the gospel of Jesus is both spiritual and physical. Jesus left the spiritual realm of heaven to come here to our physical world. The heavenly man came here and was very much earthly good. Jesus came here so that he could restore our souls and our bodies and this earth. But notice the pattern. It's been littered throughout the book of Philippians because Jesus' hope was set on restoring this world. He poured his life out for it. He suffered, he was ridiculed, he was persecuted, he was beaten, he was betrayed, he was spat upon, he was mocked. But more than anything else, Jesus had to come to defeat our enemy, sin and death. And after triumphing over our great foe, Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Oliver O'Donovan wrote in a book titled Resurrection of Moral Order, he said, the resurrection of Christ is a new affirmation of God's first decision that Adam should live. Adam has not been allowed to uncreate what God has created. In the resurrection of Christ, creation is restored. If you are a follower of Christ, he has made you a citizen now in this world of his kingdom. We are an outpost of the new world that has come and is yet to come. Therefore, let us be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Lord, I thank you. That even this morning, it might not feel practical that the church is an outpost of heaven, but it is. And I look and I see a big, giant family of all ages and backgrounds. and That is a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. We're united to you and we're united to one another. Lord, I continue to ask that this lost treasure of the kingdom would be polished and made gold again that has supplied so many, especially our brothers and sisters, across the world in tough places with the hope to endure and to press forward. We lift all these things to you in your name. Amen.